Welcome to the Nursing Home Podcast, your go-to source for professional insights in the long-term care industry. Hear from leaders and experts as they share current and practical insights to help make the most of your day. I've been a long-term care financial specialist. What that means is I help people plan for the inevitable. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to think about getting old, but it's possible that someday we might need a little bit of care. Here's your host, nursing home administrator turned podcaster, Shmuel Septimus. Okay, and we are live. Okay, so good morning, LinkedIn. Thank you for taking a moment and sharing your morning with us today. Um, as many of you have probably are already aware, uh, the coronavirus has spread more than we would have liked it to in the United States. Um, and we have a death toll that is climbing. I believe that we already have six deaths and four of which are in the same skilled nursing facility in Kirkland, Washington. And because there's just so much talk about it and, and because there are so many questions, there's confusion, there's intentional panic, perhaps, you know, the a media frenzy, uh, to, to really to bring this to the forefront, and we really want to have just a conversation about this. And as as some of you know, we already had a, one conversation about this last night. But today, I reached out to Dr. Wasim. Please tell me how you pronounce your last uh, name. Hanum. Hanum. Ganem. Ganem. So today, we uh, reached out to Dr. Wasim Ganem, who really is offers uh, boots on the ground, firsthand experience in getting his facilities. Uh, trained and prepared to manage uh, the coronavirus and more specifically the COVID-19 strand of the coronavirus. Uh, Dr. Ganim is the CEO and founder of Telehealth Solution and is a national telehealth speaker and is very involved in multiple facilities remotely and has been a practicing physician as well. So Dr. Ganim, welcome to the Nursing Home Podcast and welcome to this live LinkedIn and Facebook stream. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure um, and to have you and to offer just some information. So let's jump right into this. I know that I've seen, even on right here on LinkedIn, I've seen, um, I forget which administrator somebody posted this morning, um, you know, we don't, we need face masks, we need gowns, and this is a, this is a very unique uh, or a, an acute shortage of personal protective equipment um, in the nursing home space, and I'm sure in the healthcare, you know, in the world in general, forget about, you know, private individuals obtaining this. So I guess let's start right there. And we may have further conversations with others in the industry to figure out how to get them. But how does that affect, uh, or maybe even if you could say boots on the ground, the perspective, like how are you dealing with that in the facilities that you're involved with? And what would you advise other facilities to do with that particular challenge? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question, and it's actually been a global shortage discussion, actually. And, you know, anytime that you're looking or referencing data of how to prevent the spread or transmission, it's hand hygiene and droplet precaution. Now, currently, um, the CDC has come out with recommendations that says healthy people, you know, who are not immunocompromised do not need masks at this present time because you know, the post-acute or the hospital-based settings are trying to compete with consumers as well in regards to these masks and precautions, which is driving up prices even 
further. So really following the CDC guidelines on the, you know, the correct rationale or the usage of these masks would go a long way as a beginning point. Okay. So basically what they're saying is <clears throat> that if you're not compromised, if you're not in a skilled nursing facility, if you're not in the hospital, don't be extra cautious by buying your, you know, you're going to buy in bulk all your masks and everything. That's very nice, but there are people who need it desperately, and for them, it might really be a life and death situation. Like Absolutely. you said, if you're not compromised in any way, of course, there are individuals. We're not saying that the health of one individual is more important than the health of another another individual. Rather, what we're saying is that there are those who are more at risk, and there well, are those who are uh, morbidity and mortality. The majority of the people who are most susceptible to this current virus are those who are frail, elderly, immunocompromised. And so really that's where the efforts and the resources have to be spent on. Like even in the state of Washington, uh, these deaths have been attributed to a nursing home setting, which is, again, that's where you find your frail and elderly, you know, most vulnerable population. Right. I mean, in addition to that, we also have to realize that it's also just a, it's a community. It's a cluster of people, <clears throat> excuse me, the cluster of people living together closely. And even if they weren't compromised, that itself would be, a challenge you know for and probably i mean tell me what you think but uh if you have other communities where you have a, a large group of people living together i don't know a boarding school or something like that even if they're not compromised they probably would also pose a greater threat than a regular family living at home absolutely absolutely which is why if you've seen a little bit in the media like cruise ships for instance you put a lot of people together in one confined space you know i mean if a family is like that too in a way but it's it's obviously, you know, the numbers are very, very different. Now, just I was just, you know, trying to educate myself a little bit on the coronavirus, or as I was corrected yesterday to refer to it as the COVID-19 strand right. of the coronavirus. Um, I'm seeing that the numbers in China are actually diminishing. So the number of new cases, uh, I don't know if it's been today or this week, have actually for the first time been declining. Now, does... And there, I guess people are looking at that as an indication that there's a lifespan to the COVID-19 coronavirus and that worst case scenario, we know that, you know, there is an end in sight. Is that How does that work? Can you explain that a little bit? You no, know, I agree. And again, I'll start with two parts to that question. One is something the Chinese government has able been, been able to enforce that, you know, some countries just cannot. It's more of a stricter quarantine policy, uh, okay. like when you would go on and look at various um, media reports, uh, literally these towns or these cities were under strict quarantine orders, and that's one way to combat it. Um, and, you know, the, the, the biggest thing with coronavirus is the way that I've been trying to explain to our nursing home clients is it's basically the flu on steroids. So, I mean, again, most people will be able to get through these symptoms, but it just requires a substantial amount of supportive care. Mm -hmm. Not the virus that in essence kills you, it's the shutting down of organs that then causes, you know, whether it be end organ failure because of, you know, volume depletion from these symptoms. Got it. So for a regular person on the street, they may actually have a strand, you know, the COVID-19 virus, and they perhaps wouldn't even know um, that they have it. And, you know, they should go on business as usual. It's only for those who are, you know, it's only for some of those affected individuals that it's going to be, um, that it's going to be that much more 
problematic for them. Because now, of the stress that it puts on their body. Okay. Okay. Now, for let's, you know, if someone's, let's focus for first on the nursing home space. And then perhaps, you know, we could go to the general population. But like we've discussed already, you know, how it's affecting those because of the cluster, because of the compromised health. And we know the challenge of limited uh, resources for the nursing home staff uh, to, protect, to protect themselves and also to protect their residents and, uh, and anyone who's coming in contact with the nursing home um, during this time. So say somebody cannot get their hands is simply a shortage of their protective equipment and they cannot they, they don't have masks and they're in the skilled nursing facility well like do you have any facilities like that and how would you advise them if, if they were to ask you like what do we do we simply don't have enough you know i've seen people try to come up with almost a home-brewed methodology of trying to create some kind of air filtration for these particles um i really don't have an answer for that aspect of it again i think uh, having the appropriate rationale of masks. The biggest thing is, is you know, if you identify any patient with symptoms, immediately putting them under droplet and isolation precautions would be imperative because, again, that limits how many people can come in contact with a possibly infected patient. Mm -hmm. it's all about really right now rationalizing your resources. Um, I've seen a little bit of stuff on the media where people are just really taking it to a different level with homemade masks and everything, and I'm not so sure about the science behind that. Because of how effective they are? Correct. Uh-huh. So, okay, so any, uh, this is interesting, I wasn't planning on discussing this, but any surface, like if you take a piece of paper and put it over your mouth, assuming that it, that it can sustain, you know, your breathing and all that, would that, would that not be effective to some level or it's tight it's tough because like when you're wearing a mask for like droplet precautions it's all about how that mask fits over your nares and okay. giving you a seal you know what i mean so you might be morally thinking that you're doing the right thing but in actuality i mean we're talking about such small particles that if you don't have a proper seal in place really you're just appeasing you know so you're saying it's not just about covering your mouth and your nose I mean, that's something, I guess that's protecting you from others to some extent. Right. The seal is what's preventing um, others um, from being able to, from, from you being able to um, pick up whatever particles there are from other people. Right. And so I really think, you know, as we've seen, I've been reading certain reports and, you know, the biggest thing in the nursing home setting, if you're low on masks, is obviously making sure that you have a good cl cleaning procedure in place, making sure that your house staff is cleaning down all surfaces, whether it be through Lysol, you know, everything, anything that people will come in contact with, and certainly good hand hygiene performance, meaning now is the time to make sure that you're washing your hands after each patient encounter, washing your hands, or using some some form of a hand sanitizer. I actually printed this as well for any of our, I've been sharing this with a lot of our post-acute colleagues. This comes from uh, AMDA, if you will, the American Medical Directors Association, and it kind of helps with more focused on the post-acute care setting with what some of the facilities can do to be prepared. Got it. Got it. All right. Maybe we can share that, you know, with our, with our listeners. We could work on that. We could talk about that after the show. Um, but I do appreciate that because there are, obviously there are, th there are steps that can be taken. Again, we know that a good infection control uh, policy and procedure, it goes a long way to prevent 
you know, lots of viruses and infections, but now is the time to be super religious about it and to make sure that you're really following it to a T. That, and honestly, you have to think of a nursing home as there's a lot of people coming in and out. So non-essential visitors, vendors who might have be suggestive of any symptoms. Now's the time to really make sure that you're checking in who's coming into your building and who's coming out of your building. Okay. So, so you know, visitation limit. Do, do you put limits on visitation or do you recommend that for nursing homes, uh, even if they don't have any particular concerns? You know, I go back to my hospital days when I would practice in the hospital. Under times like this, you don't want young kids coming in. You don't want elderly who have, you know, who might be compromised, just, you know, it puts a strain on them. And you certainly don't want anybody coming in who has any suggestive symptoms uh, to be coming into your building. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, what do you think is the, the number one biggest challenge right now uh, for nursing home operators other than what we've already discussed? I know that you mentioned that you're fielding calls all day yesterday, um, working with your nursing home clients to get them you know, prepared and managed and be, get their handle on this so that they can properly manage this. Like, what has been the, you know, the biggest challenge? And, and I'm asking this not just to find out what your challenges are, although that's, that's interesting, but I'm sure that whatever challenge and solutions you're coming up with in a very real way, uh, there, are, there are plenty of other healthcare facilities, nursing homes that are going through the same thing. So One of the challenges that you're going to find is healthcare providers uh, possibly being infected. You're going to find nurses, you're going to find nursing assistants, you're going to find doctors who probably are infected. And currently, CDC guidelines are showing that anyone who has symptoms of this should not be in any form of direct patient contact. So imagine a rural community that has one or two medical doctors rounding in their building, and one of which is now under possible quarantine. Well, that puts a strain on the management of patients. Certainly, the other aspect is you know, providers are going to see a big rush into their offices of patients with symptoms. You're going to have much busier uh, medical practice offices, which now puts a strain on these nursing homes to say, but what about the care of the residents in the community, you know, in our nursing home? So we're going to see a huge surge, if you will, of a strain on our current medical providers, one. And then the other one is, again, we're already dealing with a nationwide nursing shortage in post-acute so now a nurse who has symptoms of this can no longer come in on shift. That, again, puts a strain on the, on the system, if you will, for our clients. Got it. Got it. And that is so true. I mean, we know the challenge of, of every single day in a nursing home, you know, uh, getting coverage. I was just speaking to someone from another state yesterday. And they were saying, I don't know how it is by you, but over here in our state, we have a nursing shortage. I'm like, hello? <laughs> That's yeah. how it is everywhere. Wait, this, this, this is a nationwide challenge, and that's a whole separate conversation as to why that is. I'm just looking now in the LinkedIn comments, and I see that I have, there's an administrator, Shalom Lerner. Thanks for uh, chiming in. And he's asking, what is the difference between uh, the, th- this outbreak of the coronavirus, COVID-19, and, and the flu? Now, even before, I'll tell you the, the uneducated um, administrative response, and this is also based on the conversation we had uh, yesterday, um, is that the flu is expected. Actually, you know what? You're, you're the physician. <laughs> you, you tell us. You, you'll give the full, complete answer. Sure. So, I mean, obviously, we lose approximately 70,000 people, people, people a year annually just from the flu, believe it or not. One biggest wow. difference between the flu and COVID-19 is we have 
in essence, a vaccine for the flu for the majority of the strains. We don't have any vaccinations right now for COVID-19. You know, as far as similarities go, both are going to cause fever, cough, body aches, vomiting possibly, and diarrhea. Some can result in a pneumonia-like etiology. The transmission between them are, in essence, the same. It can both be transmitted in droplets and infected people coughing, sneezing. You know, there has been a concern that a difference can be is COVID-19 spread through airborne route. Um, and as far as, you know, differences go, uh, COVID-19 is caused by one virus, if you will, and it's called the novel 2019 coronavirus, um, where flu can be caused by several different types or strains of the influenza virus. Mm-hmm. And well, what, what about as far as symptoms are concerned? Symptoms are almost identical to believe it, believe it or not, which is why when we've been working with our clients, we've been asking for them to basically get a flu swab first because that's readily available. There have been some discussions that you can get a respiratory panel, which might show the strain of COVID-19. But the issue is, is currently you're waiting about five to seven days to get a respiratory panel to come back. So really, if you suspect flu, you need to go ahead and treat it even as if because the symptoms are so suggestive and so similar to one another. Okay, so someone's, I mean, we're getting, if, I, if I'm cor- correct in this, right, we're towards the tail end of the flu season in general. And so to, to see if someone sees a sudden surge um, in the flu in their facility and they know that this is an atypical, right? An unusual year, yeah, hopefully that they can, you know, they're vaccinated against it and wh- whatever cases there might be, they'll manage it properly. But assume that all of a sudden they start seeing flu-like symptoms. Uh, I'm just thinking now as an administrator, I would start getting really nervous because this is not something that, that we would uh, that we would expect. So... I would, but here's what I would also suggest to you. The treatment, in essence, is going to be the same thing, minus that, you know, at this present time, there's no documentation that antivirals are going to help with COVID-19, where, such as Tamiflu, we, I mean, such as for the flu, you can use Tamiflu to help shorten the duration of these symptoms. And again, you know, I don't want to de-emphasize COVID-19, but just when you look at statistics, we lose in the United States between 12 to 61,000 deaths per year in the U.S. from the flu and approximately 291 to 646,000 deaths annually from the flu. So if you're prepared for the flu, then certainly being prepared then for this would be of uh, utmost importance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. Um, okay, so, Sean, thank you for chiming in again. So I'm just getting a further clarification. Sure. Right? that the question really is as far as the right procedure to take actually follow up to my last comment procedure to isolate line listing isolation extra housekeeping um usually you know our i guess the response is similar so would you treat them any differently than someone let's say you have confirmed flu and you have confirmed coronavirus you know covid 19 with the treatment or the the process, the infection control process and and the con- containment process, be any different for the two viruses? No, I will tell you though. In the hospital-based setting, we would have, if we had the rooms available, we would put somebody in what's called a negative pressure isolation room. Those kinds of opportunities do not exist in post-acute. So the biggest thing is putting that patient in a droplet precaution in an isolation format. If they have a roommate, you have to remove that roommate from that room, if you will. Um, I would also probably limit the nurses who come into interaction with that patient to possibly, you know, quarantine or prevent the spread of that, that those virus symptoms, if you will, to the other residents. That's your biggest concern. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, thank you for fielding 
uh, that question directly. So I was just also trying to look now, like, to what extent, you know, th this is something that's new. This is some. This is uncharted territory. And you, you, you know, you shared with us some statistics, you know, a couple minutes ago, of the what the the effects of the flu in a typical year and other similar, uh, not and other similar types of illnesses. So is this really, um, to what extent is the media blowing this up? Let's just say it the way it is. To what extent is the media blowing this up? And to what extent is this really a serious threat compared to every other virus that's here? And, you know, as healthcare providers, we have, we're dealing with illness all day, every single day. Unfortunately, that's the way of the world. I think, you know, it, there's, I would say, a huge amount of this is media driven, but that doesn't mean that you just sit on your hands and assume everything is well. The biggest concern is obviously we don't have a current vaccine for this. We don't really have anything like Tamiflu to help suggest of, of shortening the symptoms of it. And so that's where we need to be precautious about it. But again, if you're prepared for the flu, then you can easily be prepared for COVID-19. Um, and I will emphasize to our post-acute care partners, sending your patient directly to the hospital, that puts that patient now in an ER waiting around other sick folks. And again, you're trying to limit the transmission of this. So really making sure that you have the proper tools in place to manage these residents is what's going to be imperative. Okay. So well, to me, at least that that's very encouraging because, you know, the symptoms are very similar um, and the management procedure is pretty much identical, except that you're saying that you might put someone on droplet precautions. Um, if someone has the COVID-19 coronavirus, um, as far, yeah, and we don't want, I mean, a, a major distinction, which you're pointing out, is that there is no known vaccine uh, for this illness as there is for the, you know, we have the Tamiflu for the flu. But as you mentioned earlier, that even the Tamiflu doesn't do anything to, it may, if you get it in the right, right in the first 48 hours or something, then it could take a few hours off of the. Correct. It's just for the, it's just for symptom management and the duration. I mean, again, whether it's COVID-19 or coronavirus, what you're looking to do the most is supportive care measures. And what supportive care measures means, excuse me, antipyretics, meaning keeping that patient's fever down, whether it be through Tylenol or ibuprofen, any kind of antipyretics. And the biggest thing is obviously making sure that you can have some IV fluids for that resident because these residents are not going to be eating and drinking properly. They're more susceptible. If they're having a fever, they're going to lose an insensible amount of volume. Losing volume then puts a strain on the kidneys, puts a strain on the heart, puts a strain on vital organs. So making that sh patient sure, making sure that that patient has adequate PO intake, supplemental IV fluids if needed, and keeping that fever down during that latent, during that infective phase is imperative mm -hmm. for the uh, patient's outcome. Got it. Is there, oh, I, th I know, I think this was discussed uh, yesterday, but is there a difference in the mortality rate, I guess, in a percentage-wise, between um, between uh, let's say a typical flu and COVID nineteen, and um, I think when you're looking at the mortality rate from what I've been seeing so far, it's really been the biggest concern is is from what I've seen as far as World Health Organization reported data, mm -hmm. patients who are above eighty plus years old have a confirmed death rate of twenty one point nine percent. And from that's where your biggest concern is from coronavirus. And how does that compare to the flu? I don't have the exact, I did not prepare with the flu uh, as far as the uh, flu data. But what I was trying to emphasize is, is why are we seeing this as the biggest concern in the nursing homes is 
how many patients are in your building that are above the age of 80 versus somebody who's out in the common workplace, you know, a healthy middle-aged adult. That's where your biggest strain is. And again, it's not the virus killing the patient. It's the strain on the organs that ends up causing the patient to go into organ failure. Got it. Another question here. And I really appreciate your time here. Um, let's say, I, so I'm in, you know, director of nurses or whatever it is, I'm managing a facility and I have a concern regarding a particular patient. I see that they're displaying symptoms that can be flu symptoms. They can be coronavirus symptoms. We test and the, the patient test positive for flu. Is that a positive uh, proof that it's not coronavirus or is it possible to be both? You know, it's it, that's a great question, but they are totally different strains, to be honest with you. From what I've been reading as well, your highest mortality is if the patient tested positive for both. Okay, so that means they're not mutually exclusive. No, they're different strains from what I've been reading. They're diff But, okay, I just want to make sure I'm understanding. So different strains means that if they test positive for flu, it is possible that they also have coronavirus, correct? Correct. correct. Hmm. Okay, I was hoping because you mentioned earlier that you should still test them for flu and treat it with flu. So, you know, if someone tests positive for the flu, we should do, you know, all the standard precautions that we would do for the flu. We should administer town flu if we catch it in time. Um, and then, like you said, you know, with, with management of, you know, making sure that they're eating and drinking and getting all the fluids and managing their fever and, you know, managing all the symptoms properly. But even after doing all that, um, we still don't know that that they don't have coronavirus. So now, assuming someone tests positive um, for for COVID nineteen, right? And they're you know, and their symptoms are being managed in isolation. They're doing whatever they can to the best of their ability. Is there like what is what is the what's the normal amount of time that it takes? You know, like a first be five six days. For up to 10 to 14 days from what I've been reading. You know, the biggest thing is making sure that the patient's afebrile. You would probably need to go ahead and report this to your uh, uh, local state governing authority that you have a patient that's positive, obviously. And then uh, certainly we're working on as far as diagnostics uh, here within the U.S. rapid testing is just testing that patient to make sure are they still in an infective state or not. Mm -hmm. And now right now, if uh, a nursing home wants to test someone, uh, because they have, you know, they have such a concern. What is the process? Like you mentioned, that it's a five, six day turnaround. Are are those tests? I know. I also was through conversations and some research. I also saw that there's a shortage of these tests. So, a can a nursing home get their hands on a testing kit? And um, and what is the actual turnaround time? Well, that's a good question. I had actually received some information. I've been looking as far as like one of the major lab companies as far as LabCorp, uh, their nationwide laboratory company, mm -hmm. they currently don't even have a test for COVID-19. So right now, really, the biggest can be performed by, uh, the testing is really performed by the CDC, U.S. Centers for Disease Control, along with state and local public health labs. So really, the biggest question then is, is getting in touch with your state or local public health labs to say, do you have the testing ability? And if they don't, then really you're going to have to treat regardless, putting that patient in quarantine and notifying your local state or health public of, you know, uh, municipality that you have a concern or possibility of this. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so basically there isn't, there isn't a simple way. For no. You. There's no swab. Rapid flu swab test, you know, like right now in the nursing homes, you could do a rapid flu. Well, that's just not the case. Wow.
Uh, so chances are, I mean, especially, you know, there's no vaccine now. There will not be a vaccine. And probably uh, I'm assuming that the coronavirus will disappear before we have a chance. This version or this strand, the season of, of the coronavirus will go before we have a vaccine. Um, but first of all, is that correct? Correct. I mean, I've been reading as far as um, um, I've been reading that there's been reports coming out from both the uh, from Israel as far as some opportunities have been coming about from a laboratory perspective to create a possible vaccine. But I don't think from what I've seen so far, we're not close yet to a mass spread vaccination uh, policy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so then how long... Uh, I guess this is a question, you know, initially, you know, just to frame this a little bit, right? So initially this was a thing that was happening in China and it was limited there. And even there, they were doing whatever they can to limit it. And we were all uh, hopefully, you know, hoping and praying that they manage it well there and a knowing that it doesn't spread further um, in China, but, and also that it doesn't come to other here you know and it's spread and unfortunately it's continuing to spread so there's a you know now we're looking to prevention we don't want to spread further and management which is what we're discussing today but at what point are can we expect to say that okay that that was a challenge you know whoever was affected was affected but now that's behind us are we looking i don't even know if there's a way to know this like typically, I guess with other things, you know, um, what was it, SARS and swine flu and these other things that came by, like are those things that are, we're talking about a couple months or is, is it, and is there a potential for this? What's worst case scenario? <laughs> you just follow the flu symptoms or when does flu season end? You know, not that it's like beginning of pool season, but typically you'll see a drop in flu documented cases by the end of April, you know, and so... If we just use historical data with when do we start seeing flu curtail, you're looking at end of April as an opportunity. Now, I don't, I'm not particularly aware whether or not we're go that's going to also mimic with COVID-19. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, if you just follow historical, you're looking at roughly end of April. Kind of going back again, if you don't have testing, you know, currently the CDC is recommending about a 14-day incubation period. I mean, that's really where somebody is in their highest infective rate. So if somebody hasn't had a fever, any suggestive symptoms beyond 14 days, if you don't have the ability to lab test that patient, that's probably a safe and precautionary window to say, okay, this is no longer an infective patient. Got it, got it. Now that makes sense. Now, uh, someone's pointing out here, uh, Linda's pointing out here in one of the comments that you know in the nursing home space, a lot of times, if you're, especially if you're running your nursing home well and you have a good, healthy census and most of your rooms are filled, you don't have extra empty rooms. You know, taking a patient out might not be a possibility. Is, is there a way to manage, a, you know, a, an isolation process without removing somebody from the room? Or, or what would you do? Maybe would you put that person in the hallway? How, how would you manage that? I mean, unfortunately, you're going to have to find a way to isolate that patient. So unless all of your rooms are double booked, you're going to have to move any kind of uh, you're going to have to move any kind of roommate to a different part of the hall or a different part of, you yeah. know, you know, ideally you would like to. And I know that you have to also manage bed occupancy. You would like to have a particular hall to kind of quarantine off any suggestive or symptomatic patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, just assume that the room had a massive leak and you had to remove the patients or it was on, I don't know if it was on fire because then you have to evacuate the building. But if there was a different reason, the room was just simply not available, you would figure something out. 
So you're gonna have to figure something out as well. So if the resident, so, but I guess the roommate would also have to be like you just mentioned, you know, the roommate was exposed, but not displaying symptoms. So th that itself yeah, would be probably isolation, exactly. Uh -huh. And you're gonna have to go back and track back, which of those, you know, were these mobile patients, meaning if they were mobile patients, did they come in contact with others? And that's, then you have a bigger issue on your hand. And when, if you do have that, that's where you need to notify, again, your local health authority to help with this particular case. Got it. You know, we started with one in the state of Washington, and now we have six patients who have passed away in that nursing home. Right, right, right. I think it was four that passed away in the nursing home, but six that passed right, away right. in the state. But we clearly see that all the deaths in the United States were in the same state. And uh, presumably, I mean, we, we, we see that, you know, it's been... Trans, we, we like to believe at least that it's coming it's all coming from the same place although um, I did see some reports of cases uh, which people have not deaths but people who tested positive uh, for COVID-19 and they don't have they don't know how they can connect themselves to traveling overseas or anything like that there but, was this morning a gentleman in New York who tested positive the only right. linkage if you will was that he traveled to Miami now what does that even mean you know what I mean you live in the world, you know, the world's capital of New York. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but it's just so many people, you know, you need one person who, you know, who was in contact with one person who, you know, it, it's, it's, yeah, it can be a scary thought to think how simple it could be uh, to spread it further. Now, um, I really appreciate you coming on here today and sharing, you know, some of your knowledge and really uh, the boots on the ground experience, because I know that, you know, you shared with me yesterday, that this is really what you were busy with. Um, any final words of advice or caution or, you know what, even better yet, encouragement to the nursing home frontline staff that on a day-to-day -day basis are are really, you know, acting many times in heroic ways uh, just for day-to-day -day operations of the nursing homes, and now they have this on their hands. Any final you know, nursing homes already operate, God bless them, in very tough conditions. They already operate in some really challenging conditions, and so... The good thing is, is again, I would make sure, especially for your large operators, make sure that all of your buildings have an emergency preparedness plan. You know, as an owner, as leadership, making sure that you've procured as many masks and gloves and everything else, protective equipment that you can for your team. Making sure that your buildings are stocked with adequate amounts of Tylenol and IV fluid and IV starter kits. Making sure that you have nurses who can start IVs on these patients. And really, the, you know, the, the only other... Biggest thing is, is following guidelines, meaning following the Centers for Disease Control, and most importantly for the post-acute is following the American Medical Directors Association's guidelines in the post-acute care settings, meaning don't get your news from what you see sensationalized or get your recommendations from what you see sensationalized on the news. Common things being common. Wash your hands. You know, these are the, it's, I know it seems so cliche, but this is what's going to prevent and limit the transmission of this disease. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, and like we said, you know, there's, there's the sensationalized version of the facts, and then you could go to the CDC or, you know, the World Health Organization, and you could see, you know, the distilled information into what it really is. And and, and I'm not, I'll point out one final point here, is that there's a certain anxiety or tension that exists, you know, we'll call for what it is, between nursing home operators and the regulatory oversight 
because of the annual surveys, because of the complaint surveys, because because every time you deal with the public health, it's usually not it's usually not a partnership, unfortunately, or not, I don't know if usual is the right word. Many times it's, and but by definition, that's what regulators are there to do. So in I'll, leave you with, I'll leave you with this when I was training as a medical resident and I'll leave you with this to kind of for all of your clients. When I was training as a medical resident, I remember very vividly being taught, you'll never get in trouble to doing your best to take care of a patient. So as long as you do everything in your power to take care of your residents, you're never going to get in trouble for those types of things. And you're documenting and you're putting in your efforts, number one. And number two, for all of our friends in the post-acute care industry and everywhere, really, panic will not help your patients. Preparedness will. You know? So being knee-jerk in your decisions and following, again, what you see on TV, that's not going to help your patients. Proper preparation, planning, making sure you have policies in place, that's what's going, that's what you and your team are going to lead upon if you have an outbreak in your building. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, and a, you know, every, everyone knows that a properly run building is really not concerned, you know, about, you know, when the Department of Public Health comes in or whatever they called in your state. Um, I know initially, you know, I mean, this is personal, you know, when I started as an administrator, that was like the terror leading up to it. And I heard so much about it before I even came into the field. And when they actually walked into the building, everyone's shaking. And, you know, directors of nursing sometimes break down crying because of certain things. You know, it, it can get very dramatic. Um, but when you if you have a well-run building and you and I know this it definitely is cliche, but if you actually do this and you actually run your building as if they're there every day, then when they walk in, everyone's calmer. They're, you're calmer and therefore they're calmer and and you know you're it actually can be a, a beneficial process and it's difficult to regulate people and when your job is to enforce regulatory compliance when you're dealing with people whose nerves are frazzled and they've been up all night and 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 as a result everyone reporting to them feels the same way so you know we can't take advantage of the expertise that the you know the healthcare uh, you know the regulators and all the state and city agencies have to offer and especially times like this hopefully we, you know we can work together uh, for everyone's benefit absolutely so thank you again uh dr wasim ganem i say it right uh, yeah that's perfect yep thank okay. you so having me. thank you so much for coming on i really appreciate you sharing this real information uh you know with our listeners uh the, those who are watching live now on linkedin and on facebook and those are going to be listening to this on the podcast, on the Nursing Home Podcast as well. Um, and I really, really appreciate it. This, this Likewise, is thank you for doing great work. Be well. All right, you too. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Now that you've enjoyed this episode of the Nursing Home Podcast, I'd really appreciate if you'd rate this podcast and let everyone else know what an amazing resource this is for those wanting to learn anything and everything about the nursing home industry. So head on over to ratethispodcast.com slash nursing home. Again, ratethispodcast.com slash nursing home. Leave me a review and let the world know what an amazing show this truly is. Thank you so much for listening and make sure to stay tuned and subscribe so you don't miss any other episodes.